Design can be found in everything we touch, see and hear. I'm Luke Irwin and I've always been fascinated by making the sometimes rarefied world of design more accessible. This recording is from the By Design talk series created by the Sir John Soane Museum in partnership with me. These talks invite some of the most innovative and well-respected designers of our generation to discuss one everyday object that has inspired their design practice. The interviewers for the series are Will Gompertz, arts editor at the BBC, and Alice Rawsthorn, design writer and critic. These intimate conversations take place in the candlelit dining room of Sir John Soane's museum, bringing to life Soane's long-held ambition to create an academy of the arts where all forms of design can be celebrated. In this conversation, Will Gomberts talks to Edmund Duval, an artist and writer, best known for his large-scale installations of porcelain vessels, often created in response to collections and archives or the history of a particular place. His striking interventions and artworks have been made for diverse historic spaces and museums worldwide. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm Will Gomperts. To my right is Edmund Duval. Uh, who has exhibited around the world. He's a best-selling author, of course, for The Hair with the Amber Eyes, translated into over 30 languages. He's lusted after by collectors. He's adored by curators. He is, as they say nowadays, Edmund, a multidisciplinary artist, but whose work has the most modest beginnings. It emerges, quite literally, from the earth. Edmund is a potter, an artist, an author, a curator, a trustee, an OBE, a collaborator, a designer. And tonight, a very welcome guest for this podcast. Please give Edmund a warm welcome. Edmund, we're in the Sir John Stone Museum for a reason. You have had a chance to look around the museum and pick an object that you thought was of particular interest and maybe even inspirational in some way, shape or form to you. What have you picked and why? We're surrounded actually at this moment by incredible pots. Above us is an extraordinary history of Greek Attic pottery and I've chosen none of them. (laughs) Um, I've chosen one of an extraordinary set of Indian chairs. This is one of a quartet of chairs. There's also a very beautiful oval table as well. And what we're looking at is a chair from around 1800, perhaps a little earlier. It's thought to be now from Bengal. It's made of ivory with a rattan seat. And what it is, is pure fantasy. It's, 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 it's storytelling in ivory. You've got five legs supporting this oval chair, um, three of which come down into tiger's paws. And we might get back to why tigers happen. And the armrests. Am I allowed to touch it? Probably not. Uh, the, the armrests you end just in... Touched. I just touched <laughs> Sewn touched them, damn it. Yeah. So uh, they, end, they end in these extraordinary tiger's heads. So as you sit in this ivory throne, leaning back on a beautiful oval, which has been of pierced ivory, um, which sort of hovers in the chair, you have your hands on two tiger's heads and your feet as you sit sit <laughs> alongside tiger's paws so what's going on with this fantasy in ivory i mean it's obviously there's a lot happening here and what's so interesting about this chair we'll talk more about mm. what it is and why it is mm. and and the ben, the bengali aspect to it but of course it it comes into the sewn collection 
And Soane creates this story around it, which is utterly romantic and, and latterly we discover untrue. Doesn't, it never ever matters about the untruth of stories. It's, it's how you tell, tell them. I should, should I say that as a writer? <laughs> I, I think it's true, actually. I, so Julian Barnes once said to yeah. me, to give, you, to give you freedom to say that, yeah. he said that um, the best writing is an essential truth wrapped in a beautiful lie. Yeah, well, I think we should just go home. I mean, that sort of, that sort of says Soane Museum altogether. All, all Soane, of course, w when we're thinking about Soane, which we do a lot, we think about him as this collector of stories. I mean, you know, he is a collector of stories compulsively. Everywhere you move through this incredible house, you see one layer of narrative on top of another. Um, and he's endlessly reinventing himself as a collector. And the great joy of his reinvention is, is that he's, is that one kind of, of fiction about, say, the classics or, or about Gothic architecture or about the Egyptians or about where you begin or, 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 or about Venice or about whatever is layered on top of another. And, and some of them are, are hidden behind screens which you then open. Some are revealed only by light. It, by candlelight, some are revealed in uh, day. So all these stories unfold in different ways. So when he sees at an auction for ivory chairs and an oval table, and the auctioneer says they come from um, um, the effects of Tipu Sultan, the great nightmarish Indian uh, sultan who, who dared, who dared the wrath of the British, who dared to, to have an uprising against British rule in India and was famously struck down after a great siege in Serengvatam and was killed with a sword in his hand. And his whole palace is looted by the British. We might come back to looting later on. And all this great treasure arrives back in the British Isles and is dispersed in great collections throughout Britain and Soane sees these ivory quartet of chairs and thinks Tipu Sultan, the tiger, the, the tiger of India, tiger chairs, I'm having them. And he buys them. Believing that they are indeed mm. Tipu Sultan, who was this great nemesis of a character mm. in British consciousness yeah. at the time. And so it, he was a very, very famous figure indeed. But as it transpires, he never owned them. We could get back to that a little later, <laughs> because just on Tipu and his tiger, yes. the other great thing, which you have to run, uh, tomorrow, you have to run across town to the V&A and see Tipu's tiger, which is one of the great treasures of, of the V&A, also looted <laughs> during that siege, which is a, is a half-size uh, model of a tiger eating an Englishman. Uh, which, he, which Tipu used to wind up and it mauls the English soldier and then withdraws, you know, an after-dinner spectacle of, of the English. So tigers matter, and, and that's the story that, we, that, that, that comes with these chairs. When he buys them, he, he puts them in, in, in the picture gallery where those great Hogarths are, where the Canaletto is, where that great moment of sort of reveal and revelation is. So they, they, they ha have a very significant place within this collection. Um, and, and, you know, you have to imagine... Um, so and his RA friends sitting, you know, with their hands on Tipu's tiger's heads. But of course, yeah. in the 21st century, they represent something 
rather, rather different. There's, mm. there, I mean, there's two things, both of which you've alluded to, but we should look at in, mm. in more depth, I suppose. Is one, they are made of ivory, mm. which, is, uh, which you know a lot about, of course. We'll come on to that. But, but one, they're made of, of ivory, which is now an illegal material to mm. use. And, and two, do they even belong in Britain? Okay, so should we take ivory first? Yes. Ivory is very, very beautiful. Ivory has been worked, as far as we can see, almost from the very beginning of, of, of human work, of, of, of human facture, homo faber, you know, the people who make things. And so we find ivory fragments um, of, of um, not only of, of elephants, but of, of boar tusks, of extraordinary things way back in history. And the reason that, they, that they're worked is, of course, they have an extraordinary grain to them. And so later, when you come and see this extraordinary chair, you'll see this extraordinarily beautiful um, structure actually within the material. And um, the other thing about them, of course, is, 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 is that it feels, uh, uh, the feel of ivory is very strange because it's, it, it's neither warm nor cold, which sounds like an idiotic thing to say, um, but, but I've had a lot of ivory in my hands over the years. It, it's got an extraordinarily somatic quality of, of kindness to it. It's, it. it's a very nice material to have near you. Now, of course, when you're looking at what's made out of ivory, some of the greatest Renaissance treasures are made out of ivory. Indian, incredible work in India made out of ivory, including this chair. And, and yet, and yet, and yet, it is a history of the destruction of incredible animals and quite rightly, quite rightly, in my view, there's been a total ban now um, in the UK um, of the buying and selling of ivory. Um, it's a total ban. The CITES, this great international program, has been in place for now for 30 years saying you can't internationally trade I ivory, but, but Britain's taken the strong stand and said actually no trade in ivory at all um, in order to try and preserve elephants. And does that, in, in your view, because of what it takes to make a chair like this, mm in any way diminish, diminish its beauty? No. Or do, you think it, it, or do you think it's the other way around? Does, does it make it even more exotic? Its exoticism isn't because it's a rarefied material that is now banned. That would be, that's just sort of, that's, there's just perversity in that, I think. I think I, I, when I look at a kind of medieval reliquary in, in the V&A or the British Museum, I'm not thinking that's a banned substance. I'm thinking that's an extraordinary aspect um, bit of art history, of cultural history, as I do here. The fact that this can no longer be bought or sold is, is rather wonderful, I think, that it just sits now um, and it's been taken out of the world of commodification and, and trade and it just sits there and it tells us extraordinary amounts about uh, the, the Bengali culture that made this and, and, and the investment of ideas and storytelling in its passage to Britain. So whether, whether it, it, it came from Tipu's palace yeah. or not, um, and you mentioned the, the, the V&A mm. um, piece, and you're a trustee of the v &A. I am. I am. So um, a very live discussion at the moment about objects such as these mm. is do they belong in these so-called universal museums? Were, were, were they fairly received or were they ill-gotten gains? And it's a very live topic. I mean, the, the report came out in France, obviously, at the, at, um, uh, in, in the spring, I think it was. Um, and no, it was at the end of last year, wasn't it? The report came out at the end of 2018. What is, is your view 
Edmund, of, of, of these wonderful objects. Because, of course, there's a great advantage to be able to go one to one place and see them all, and you can build yourself a narrative of global cultures. But then maybe that is an unreasonable approach. So I think if you unpick that, you know, we, we can unpick it here and, and think about Sone as a universal collector and what he's trying to do, which I think we should. Um, you know, there are objects here which are storied objects. I mean, you know, um, um, from every single culture. Uh, and in, 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 I, I think you'd conceptually just to argue that anything here should be sent back. This is a, a person at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century who is collecting in a very profoundly eclectic way. But any of those judgments about authentic places of origin and places of belonging do not exist at that moment. Elgin Marbles? Well, that's where it gets complicated because <laughs> um, Elgin is... <laughs> because when you, when you segue into particular elements which are from particular architectural... where the meaning of a building is diminished by the loss of, by the loss of something which is integral to it, then I, think, then I think you are on very complicated territory indeed. Whether that becomes restitution which is a hugely important and moralised conversation about, about righting wrongs, allowing stolen things to be returned to rightful owners, something I know from my family's experience of looted Jewish art, which, so I talk with some passion about this. So whether it's restitution or whether or not it's, it's a different kind of conversation with international colleagues and institutions about different kinds of storytelling. So you keep an object in one place, but you begin to ask the people who owned it to tell a story in, in the museum you're in. For instance, at the V&A, there's an extraordinary exhibit at the moment of the Makbala treasures, which were looted from Ethiopia in 1870. Mm. And the, the few objects that the V&A have are now displayed with texts written by Ethiopian art historians and cultural historians and all the story about how they arrived in Britain and how Gladstone said that they should be sent back are all there and present. And that shows a kind of self-confidence about the complexity of the story. Let's go back to this chair. Yeah. And, uh, and its material and the fact that it's come from far away and came to Britain because of its exotic nature. Mm. And it, of course, makes me think of Netsky. Yeah. And, 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 and that quite extraordinary book you wrote about the hair with the amber eyes. <laughs> Nobody's read it. About exploring not only this object you had in the palm of your hand, ivory object, mm. um, but also what it meant to you, your family, arriving back quite quickly in, into France and that sort of that cult of Japaneseism, mm. um, which is how they came in, into your, your, your family. How do you feel about those objects and, and that story? How long have we got? Well, <laughs> it's quite a complicated question. How do I feel about it? Well, I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, the first thing to say is that it's a, an evolving story mm. because this collection we have um, as a family, we decided to do something quite radical with it in the autumn. And um, we decided what we'd do with this collection, which inherited over five generations through all these peregrinations, 
including obviously the Shah, that the vast majority of the collection would be sent back to Vienna. So they're now on long-term loan at the Jewish Museum in Vienna, where they can tell the story of my family in Vienna. But a certain number of them we sold in the autumn for the Refugee Council and made a huge amount of money for current refugees. The story of that collection is all about objects and migration, and my family and migration. And we felt, as a family, that we needed to recognize the current critical situation of, 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 of refugees now. And so actually we have separated the collection. The vast majority are now back in Vienna, and a certain amount are now out in the world doing their own migratory story. It was a big decision, but one of the things that it, it might lead us to is the fact that collections don't stay still. And that however fierce trustees are, or decisive directors of museums are, every collection is in a process of change. Even those collections like the Sony Museum or the Frick or, or wherever, or Kettle's Yard, any of these collections which have very strong identities of, about being, you know, this is the house of a particular collector and I'm, I, I leave it and everything stays still. Actually, that's not true. We know that from the Sone. You know, the Sone Museum, there were all these strange locked spaces that have been unlocked over the last 30, 40, 50 years and revealed more things. And new things acquire and sometimes things get cleaned or moved around. But when you're on the side of that story you currently yeah. are, which is yeah. giving away your own collection, yeah. selling your own collection, mm. um, do you care, and it sounds more loaded than it's supposed to mean, that word, okay. Okay, well. but, but do you care who, who, who buys them, these, these objects which have been in your family and mean so much? No. <laughs> and the, and, 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 and that, that's because if you're an artist, there's always that letting go, all the time. You're endlessly on that, it's a liminal thing being an artist, you're always on that threshold of letting something out of the studio into the world to see whether it will survive and have any agency in the world at all. God willing it will. It will find its way in the world and, and make something happen. Do you ever get and, uh, and the same, the same, the same with this collection. You know, we we put them up for sale. People were incredibly generous, and they've gone into the world. Do you ever talking about the work you produce, and that also goes out of the studio? And I understand that completely. Do you ever create a piece of work which you cannot let out of the studio? There are things I keep, and there absolutely, I've got my own thing where I I put things aside, and there sometimes, 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 very, very, very occasionally. And wonderfully, there's a kind of epiphany <laughs> in West Norwood, very odd, um, where my studio is. And there's something is so beautiful and extraordinary and odd, and I can't quite work out how it happened. And then I keep it back. And there are, so, there are things that I, are markers for me yes. that I, I don't let go, where I don't want to, anyone else to have their hands on. That is a magical thing about creation, isn't it? So sometimes, you, sometimes it, happen, it happens through you, not because of you. Yeah, I mean, you always own everything that goes wrong. I mean, that's the reality about being a writer or a, any kind of artist there's, at there's all. No, no, there's no ducking it. There's no ducking it. You open the kiln and you own that, the horror <laughs> of what you see inside you or you look at that page, that, that text, and you know, you know every infelicity is yours, but just sometimes something happens and you think, how? What, what are you? Well, that's rather nice, isn't it? <laughs>
what, what, what are you looking for, Edmund, with your, your pieces, your, your pottery? What, what is the, 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 the balance that you, you're seeking? I think what I want, if I'm really honest, is to make poetry happen with objects. It's the plural nature of objects that makes poetry possible. So it's, as you know, I make a vessel, then I make another vessel and another vessel, and then I put them together. And it's that act of putting different vessels with different volumes and different blazes and different feelings near each other and looking at the spaces between them that allows occasionally poetry to happen. And that's what I want to happen. That's what I want to happen. That's what I'm after in middle age. I'm now coming out and saying that's what I want to do. And I totally see that. And it's interesting that you, Edmund Duval, should describe it like that because somebody else might describe it as a musical element, you know, the, the rhythms, the rhymes, the tones, the, the, almost the melodies of having those pieces together. But you, you, see, you see words. I, I, I do see words, and, I, and, and the, the, what, it's one of the difficulties about talking to you, Will, at the moment. <laughs> You're doing it very well. <laughs> thank you very much. Is that, is that the presence of objects is very, very live for me. And so I'm very aware of all these objects around. And for me, they are like words. I'm on there's some kind of strong oral thing going on for me. Do you feel you want to rearrange them? <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. But, but actually, you know, that, this particu these particular rhythms, you know, and there are some, some which, are, which are formal and some which are sort of garnitures, formal, formal groupings that have been rearranged by sewn. So they're slightly out of kilter. You know, all of those things are like bits of poetry for me. They are absolutely like bits of poetry for me. It's caesura, it's pausing, and then it's the rush of different things, it's different volumes. And so that, that, has, that has a presence. And how much of Paul Celan is in there? Lots of Celan. Celan footnote time. Footnote, Celan, Romanian poet um, whose whole family was, was, was killed in the Shoah writes in German, grows up with German, writes in German, whose whole post-war corpus of, of poetry is, is, is a kind of struggle with words and putting words together into new rhythms and breaking them apart. And lots of white space, lots and lots of white space around and inside the words. So Celan is, is perpetual. And that is the white space you're exploring? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I use, obviously, I happen to have made a decision 40 years ago to use white clay. Um, and was so, there an aesthetic reason there? Was it it may possibly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm faced either with white clay or a white page, but actually, bluntly, they're the same, th the same problem. Mm. Except, you, 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 yes, there's maybe more control over a white page than there is over white clay. There's more processes which can go wrong trying to create a piece of I think I, I, I think I find quite a lot of challenges in the white page. <laughs> are, are you, I mean, how do you see yourself? Because obviously you, you've, you've been a potter, really, from, from childhood. Yeah. You've studied it in great detail in many countries, but you obviously were a scholar in English mm. at university. Mm. Is, is, is that a, a, a tension for you? Do, do you? do you find yourself being pulled in two different directions, different directions or is it one thing and one direction? I, I'm, I know, that it's, not, it's not a pull in different directions. 
It just simply isn't. I mean, increasingly, I'm able to, to know that it's one thing and whether or not it turns into a book or it turns into an exhibition, it's still really... For instance, one of the, the projects I've, I've just done, I don't know why it's taken me so long, but I've just done an edition of a book of Celan's poems for, for the Ivory Press in Madrid, which is a, um, I, I had printed by beautiful bookworks, incredible in, print. In translation? It, both in translation in German and in English on different papers, German and Japanese papers. So you can, and it's a huge book and it's bound in, in ivory coloured vellum. And is everybody here getting a free copy? <laughs> there are six of them, <laughs> which tells you something of the scale of the project. But then I washed porcelain slip, liquid porcelain, across these pages of Celan's poems, obscure, wow. and then rewrote the poems through, in, through the porcelain. So I basically made a palimpsest, you know, one thing on top of another. And it's porcelain and text and poetry coming together in one thing. And it, as I was doing it, it was just was like, this is what I can do. <coughs> this is, and in fact, for the, we may or may not get to Venice, but the, but the, the walls of my new library in Venice are, are porcelain slip. We will come to that. Yeah, yeah but, but that, what so you're we'll saying, yeah. so it begs the question, mm. does, it, does it not, that somebody who writes as well as makes pottery and sees pottery as poetry, mm. why don't you write poetry? I'm crap as a poet. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was a good adolescent poet, but aren't we all? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I read passionately. I passionately read poetry and hear poetry. But for, for the wonderful thing about, about the haptic thing about pottery, about making something, is just so fabulous. Such a privilege. Such a privilege to make things out of clay. How, how many go right? How many go wrong? You know, as the decades pass, it's, they, the ratio of disaster goes down. But, you know, things, things, things go wrong. Yes. And, 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 and the great thing about things going wrong <laughs> is, of course, that you break things up. And there's nothing better than breaking a pot into shards. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. Because, well... <laughs> As, talk to any archaeologist in the world, and they'll say that, that the world is full of shards. The, the whole of, of world culture is, is based on broken pots, fragments, fragments of pots. And, and that tells you something fantastic about the fact that you can make something as a potter, but you damn well know it's not going to survive eventually. It's going to, it's going to become shards. And that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Isn't that great? But words will... Words will, but sometimes books don't, and libraries don't. So, so two aspects I was going to ask you about this, the project with the book, with the Salam poetry, is, is um, one, why don't you write poetry? Now you've answered that very <laughs> directly. And the second one is, is this deep interest, and it's not a casual interest, it's deep interest you have for histories. I mean, that's sort of... In some ways, that's the sort of testing, isn't it? It's testing out the history is a writing histories or, or, or that kind of slightly obsessional walking in people's footsteps, which I did in my book about the family, and I also did in a book about the White Road about yeah. all the people over two thousand years who've tried to make white pots. It's a slightly obsessional testing of what space we occupy in the world now and who is alongside us 
you know, who, 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 is, who is next to us on our, on our journey through life. And with the family book, I was trying to work out highly conflicted stuff about where I came from. Mm. <laughs> and my white road book, I was trying to work out why, for God's sake, when I was old enough to know better, I was still making porcelain, why I was still making white pots. And to do that, I needed to walk with all these different people and, who tried to make white pots. And so that, that's plural histories. You say so you go to Japan, yep. you go to Germany, yep. you go to St. Ives. Yep. You find these three white mm. hills, so mm. to speak, where the mm. white clay exists, mm. looking at those stories. And yet you make your work in Norwood. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, is not no. evocative in the same way. Nope, it sure isn't. No. Um, why, why do you do that? Uh, and do you think your work would be different if you made it in, say, Japan? Um, I relish South London and love it. And maybe there's a book about the, his, the deep histories of South London ahead of me. Uh, probably not. But <laughs> I work where I, I live, happily living with my family in, 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 in London. What an extraordinary place to live. Um, I found this factory, which was an old armaments factory, and, and it's a fabulous white space to work. It has space for books and space for clay and space for an archive and space to make all kinds of things. Is it evocative? Profoundly, profoundly evocative of lots of things. Um, you know, it is next to the West Nord bus, bus garage and that isn't like working in Dresden. But can you imagine anything worse and more nightmarish than working in Dresden? Where, where, where the voices would be so strong, where you would be overpowered by, by, by the sheer pressure of all those histories and storytelling. But there is a, a romanticism to you and your work. Mm. There has to be. Yes, there is in poetry. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm intrigued that you're not drawn. It's internalised. No, it's internalised. I mean, it, it, <coughs> it's abstracted. So, you know, you, you work and you make it happen. You know, I tried Japan. Working in Japan, you die if you're a potter because you, you're, you are absolutely subsumed in these roiling traditions um, that go back, you know, millennia and these, these national living treasures and the, and, the, and the cultic things about old men knowing everything. I mean, it's dreadful. It's, 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 a, it's a heavy burden on your It's back. a heavy burden. And the few people who get out, like Hamada, you know, he escaped to England to learn how to be a potter yeah. and then went back to become a proper Japanese potter. So, you know, there, there's real reasons for West Norway. Pottery has changed on your watch, hasn't it? When, when, when you started out in this game, it was, uh, it was a, a craft and not many people knew many potters. And over the last 30 or 40 years, to some extent to do with these, to some extent to do with Grace and Perry and, and others, <laughs> yes. um, uh, and, and the good work that York is good doing, I should say, mm -hmm. that, that, that pottery, ceramics, mm -hmm. That craft has turned into something that people now perceive as art, and its status has changed quite dramatically. Yeah, I mean, it always has been an art. You know, I would just like to put that out there. Yeah. Um, it's, was it, an artist. Yeah. It's one of the great, great central arts of the world, and 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 Gauguin called it a central art. You know, he's rarely wrong on art wrong on lots of other things, but not on art. <laughs> you know, so it's always been an art. And so the catch-up that's happening now, which is to do with institutions and scholarship, and it's to do with, with people like Grayson, it's to do with the recognition of, of the incredible people like Lucy Ree, 
and Hans Koper, who kind, whose urbane kind of and urban way of thinking about where Potts worked with architecture was still profound. It's also gloriously nothing to do with creating the my generation at all. There's this whole other generation of people who are 30 years younger than us who are making fabulous, extraordinary things. And, you know, I keep finding people who are just going to evening class and making pots. And, you know, again, 30 years ago, it was, it was pretty niche. You know, either you lived in Devon down a lane <laughs> making mugs or, or, or you didn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, the whole Bernard Leach yep. sort of homage almost. Yep. And that, yep. was, that became quite a heavy burden for Potters. Leach is extraordinary. I wrote a very cross book about him, um, trying to get him off my back. Quite a good book, but it's quite a cross book. Leach's advocacy for, for pottery was, was very powerful. It's just he disliked lots of things, and he kept telling people what they shouldn't like, including Lucy Ree, or figuration, or colour, or Western pots. His canon of what was acceptable was very, very strong, hence brown pots. You know, and, and, and that's taken, it's taken a couple of generations to kind of, to kind of change that. It is totally changed now. It, has totally it is totally changed, changed. Yeah. and bravo. So here we are, March 2019. Yeah. In May 2019, yeah. Edmund Duval has a show at the Venice Biennale. During, during the Venice Biennale. Well, let's say at. I mean, the Venice Biennale, Biennale is on, and who's, yeah. who's, who's framing it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, but seriously, it's a mm. sprawling event, mm. and you have the national pavilions, which have mm. their own weirdness, yeah. and in a way, artists going there and making their own contribution mm. within the context of that mm. event mm. is part of the event. It's like the Edinburgh Fringe, mm. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you are part of the Venice Biennale, in my view. Okay. Um, why and what? Okay, why? Okay, why? Um, because I've been using the word obsessed quite a lot at the moment, but obsessed by the presence of the ghetto in Venice. Jewish ghetto. The Jewish ghetto, the first ghetto in the world. That's where the word ghetto comes from. The first walling up of people, 1516, edict. All the Jews in Venice were to live in this particular environment. There were to be gates. They weren't to be able to look out. There was to be a curfew bell. Uh, they were to pay for the Christian guards in the gates. Shylock. And Shylock. So there is this extraordinary presence of the ghetto. And we all know what ghettos are, except, 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 that the ghetto in Venice is a place of 30 different nationalities of people, the centre of translation, uh, of poetry, of music, a great generator of, of translation and of culture. And so I wanted to kind of do something in the ghetto which didn't just think of the ghetto as this melancholic space of, of dereliction mm. and banishment, but as a place of agency and, and, uh, uh, and power. So I have made a project which is in two parts. Part of it's in the ghetto, in, on the edges of some of these incredible synagogues there, um, hidden away high up, because of course you weren't allowed to show where a synagogue was in the ghetto, so you have to go along all these passages up corridor. So it's a ho the whole project is called Psalm because psalms are the great songs of exile and banishment, and also the songs of the city, yearning for the city. So in the ghetto, I've made a series of installations based around the psalms, which I think are going to be really beautiful, and there's going to be music and, and, and poetry there. And the second part of psalm is the creation 
in another part of the city next to La Fenice Opera House in a beautiful place called the Ateneo, which is a new library. And it's a library of exile. And Sorry, a library you've created? Uh, yeah, oh. so it's slightly bonkers. But I decided that what I would do was to, particularly at this current moment, was to make something that looked back into the histories of Venice as being a place of translation. Yeah. You know, the great, great powerhouse of international translation for 500 years, which is all about migration of people. Or well, is the original melting pot, wasn't it's it? It's the original melting pot. I would make a library, a new library, which was only populated by books written by exiles, from Ovid and Tacitus through Dante, of course, to Voltaire, Zola, right up into the 20th century to Walter Benjamin, to that Thomas Mann, to right up into all this extraordinary uh, cascade of writers who've been forced to leave North Africa, the Middle East, um, Korea, uh, Russia. So I put together um, a, a library of 2,000 books. It's held in a space about the size of this. The outsides of the library are washed in porcelain slip and gold. On Monday and Tuesday next week, I'm writing my new text, which is a, a, a history of all the lost libraries of the world around the library. Or a prose piece? Or it's a prose piece. So it's you, you, on the outside is a history of, from Nineveh and Alexandra all the way through all the libraries, including the looted libraries of my grandfather in Vienna and the rabbinical libraries in Lvov, all the way through to Mosul, you know, destroyed by ISIS three years ago, Timbuktu looted by ISIS five years ago, all those lost libraries. So it's, a kind of, it's a kind of cultural history of lost libraries. And then you go in and there is this incredible library, contemporary library of exile. And during the Biennale, there will be there's poets and translators and storytelling. There's a, a children's storyteller in residence who's writing a book. She's uh, from, from, from Lebanon, who's going to spend a month writing. It's going to be extraordinary events, day, night. And, and is evening. it a real library? Can people borrow books? People can borrow books. The one thing is, inside each book is a book plate, yeah. and you have to write your name. That's the only stipulation. So that... And then this whole light, so this whole library is, is I, I made it and then I'm passing it on. So it becomes a, a, a space of, of reading and reflection and performance. Who, how, <laughs> it's obvious, Will. Yes, I know. Uh, so obvious. So, so where does that idea, idea come from and how do you realise it? it? You realise it, it's quite complicated to realise. And I've had to raise money and I've had to find people who want to make it happen. But the, the extraordinary thing is that once, once you've told people that's, that, you, that now is a really good moment to make a new library, they kind of get it. And so this library will move from Venice. It's a travelling library. It will go from Venice. Then it will go to Dresden. And it will sit in the Japanische Palais, which was bombed in February, in the site of the old library there. And then the hope is that it comes eventually to the British Museum here, which of course was also bombed. Or, or, or maybe yeah. Coventry for the City of Culture. That's why we're having a public conversation. Yeah. I hadn't thought of Coventry. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Okay. So let's do that. Let's okay. do that. <laughs> I asked you how many mm. pots mm. succeed and fail, yeah. and, and mm. you said that you're, you're getting better, but you quite like breaking mm. them. Just talking to you and just hearing mm. what you say and the amount of ideas that you have, how do you suppress the bad ideas and how do you let the good ideas come through? <laughs> um, oh, God. A lot of ideas are very, very long in gestation. Yeah. 
So, you know, this idea of the Library of Excel, I was thinking about this a long, long time ago when I was researching the hair with amber eyes. And I came across the documents which were all about the looting of my great-grandfather's library. And I thought, how powerful to have a lost library at the centre of your narrative. You know, how do you, how do you work with that? And so that's, that's what's 15 years of living with this. And finally, I've made, a, made something which I sort of give make something which is resonant of loss, but powerfully now and present. So suppressing ideas doesn't ever work, but things take a long, do take a long time. Yeah. Our, our time is up, but I, I'm not going to let you go without asking one further question, which is going to be very hard for you to answer, relating to the beginning of our conversations, yeah. it's magnificent ivory chair yes. with the, the three feet and the two heads. Um, is you, I think it's a quote of yours, <laughs> to say that, Objects retain the pulse of their making. Mm. Is that a devalism? It is. With that in mind, mm. what does this chair pulse with? <laughs> what this chair pulses with, you, you hear music when you hear when you, with this, because it's, it's more, it's taking one theme, embroidering it, forgetting it, returning to it, um, and embellishing it all the time. So the pulse of its making is more and more and more. So when you come and see this, the pulse is, why don't I make this, uh, this strut move in this particular direction and then follow that through with something moving in a completely different direction elsewhere. So what you get, the pulse of this, is pleasure. Does it resonate today? Is this for you an art historical object or is it a contemporary? There's piece? no artist. Art, everything is contemporary, damn it. You know, when, when you look at this, you, you absolutely see the people who made this. When you see, when you see have you noticed here on the, on, on the feet, there's actually tiger, there's a kind of tiger skin going down. Um, um, when, you, when you look at this and you have to, you have to come and look at this, look at all the different depths of, of carving within this chair. It's, it, it's, it's present now. On that emphatic and passionate note, this podcast must end. Please, would you give a very warm round of applause to Edmund? Thank you. Thank you.